You're listening to the Friends Talking Nerdy Podcast Network. Friends Talking Nerdy. Welcome to Their Voices Podcast. I'm Colleen, and I'm joined by my co-host... PJ, hello. Hi. And in today's episode, we are going to talk about the Civil War hero, Robert Smalls, and his life. He. So let's just begin now. In this episode, we're going to talk about Robert Smalls, a formerly enslaved Civil War hero, politician, and education advocate from South Carolina. Before we begin, though, I want to point out some research discrepancies on Mr. Smalls. A book by Dorothy Sterling is one book that is that has the discrepancies in it. She was an American writer and historian. Uh, Dr. Nick Butler out of Charlotte said that there have been things in Miss Sterling's book, Captain of the Planter, the story of Robert Smalls, that were taken as confirmed facts, even though her book was more of a young adult fiction, historical fiction, young adult historical fiction. This does not mean that Miss Sterling's work wasn't completely true. It's just that some things in the story do not line up or the interviews or letters no longer exist. So we cannot confirm the information. And for example, one thing that doesn't line up was the location of where Robert and his wife, Hannah had lived during their time in slavery together in Charleston. Thankfully, the discrepancies are minor and are not a large part of his story, nor essential parts about who he was. So to tell Robert Smalls' story, you need to look at the life of his mother and the Gullah Geechee people that the two of them came from. Robert's mother was Lydia Polite. Lydia was born enslaved about 1796 on John McKee's Ashdell Plantation on Ladies Island in South Carolina. The islands of South Carolina became the home of many West African enslaved people. To this day, the culture of their ancestors has a very real, tangible expression in how they live life. Now, the biggest reason for this was the seclusion that they experienced on the lower Atlantic islands, the plantations that that they lived on were at. Many of these people arrived later than others as well, so being more secluded on the islands helped to keep their cultures from home more present and real for them. Ashdell Plantation, where Lydia was born and spent her early childhood, was largely self-sustaining. It is said that the enslaved people there rarely saw white people, likely with the exception of an overseer. The enslavers themselves wouldn't visit the plantations unless it was harvest season or for, for holidays like Christmas. Dr. Andrew Billingsley says that Lydia was in the home of her mother until she was about 10. It was either her mother or her grandmother that had been stolen from Africa. And I wasn't able to confirm exactly which of the matriarchs it was, but either way, it's really great that she was able to be with her family for as long as she was. Dr. Billingsley said it was unique for a child to be with their mother for very long. Possibly it was part of the culture of plantation life in the coastal island plantations too. While she was with her mother, her mother taught her how to cook, sew, keep house, and also to dance. So 
here's the part where we want to share about the Gullah Geechee people. And to do that, we are going to read directly from the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor Commission website. That's a mouthful. <laughs> so PJ is going to read that now. The Gullah Geechee people are descendants of West Africans who were enslaved on rice, indigo, and sea island cotton plantations of the lower Atlantic coast. Many came from rice-growing regions of West Africa. The nature of their enslavement on isolated islands and coastal plantations created a unique culture with deep African retentions that are clearly visible in the Gullah Geechee people's distinctive art, crafts, food ways, music, and language. Gullah Geechee is a unique Creole language spoken in coastal areas of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. The Gullah Geechee language became, began as a simplified form of communication among people who spoke many different languages, including slave traders, slave owners, and diverse African ethnic groups. The vocabulary and grammatical roots come from African and European language and is the only distinctively African Creole language in the United States and it has influenced traditional Southern vocabulary and speech patterns. Gullah Geechee people brought to this country a rich heritage of cultural traditions in art, foodways, and music, which was previously mentioned. Today, Gullah Geechee art and crafts are a result of, of products designed by their ancestors out of necessity for daily lives, such as cast netting for fishing, basket weaving for agriculture, and textile arts for clothing and warmth. Deeply rooted music traditions brought to the Americas by enslaved Africans, their music evolved out of the conditions of slavery that characterized their lives. The influence and evolution of musical forms that arose out of Gullah Geechee music can be heard in many musical genres, such as spiritual, gospel, ragtag, rhythm, the blues, soul, hip-hop, and jazz. The traditional Gullah Geechee diet consists of items that are available locally, such as vegetables, fruits, game, seafood, livestock, items imported from Europe, and items imported from Africa during the slave trade, such as rice, yams, hot peppers, peanuts, and watermelon, and food introduced by Native Americans such as corn, squash, tomato, and berries. Rice became a staple crop for both Galagichi people and whites in the southeastern coastal regions making use of available food or rations, making a little go a long way, and supplementing with fish and game. Leftovers from butchered and communal stews shared with neighbors were African cultural practices. African cooking methods and seasoning were also applied to Gullah Geechee homes and plantation kitchens. Because the plantation cooks were primarily enslaved women, much of the food today referred to as Southern comes from the creative 
creativity and labor of enslaved cooks. Spirituality. Religion has a sustaining role in the Gullah Geechee family and community life. Enslaved Africans were exposed to Christian religious practices in a number of ways, incorporating many in meaningful ways into their African-rooted systems of belief. These values included a belief in God, community above individuality, respect for elders, kinship bonds, and ancestors, respect for nature, honoring community, and honoring continuity of life and the afterlife. Lowcountry plantations frequently had a praise house or a small structure where slaves w- could meet for religious services. Wow. They have a really strong culture that it's, to me, I think it's amazing and it shows like, like a fortitude, like they're, they didn't, they wouldn't let go of who they were. <laughs> and I, I admire that. It's interesting that they were able to keep it for so long, especially with how slavery would have forced them to leave their culture behind in many ways. Yep, definitely. So let's keep going back Mm -hmm. to the story at hand. It is said that one Christmas, enslaver John McKee and his wife Margaret came to the Ashdell Plantation to give gifts to the enslaved people. A gregarious Lydia came up to Mrs. McKee and thanked her for the orange that she'd received. I'm assuming the McKees were wanting to bring someone to their home to care for their children anyways, but Lydia's mother had prepared her well for the job that she'd have with the McKees. She was brought to the McKees' home in Beaufort, where she would keep house and help with the McKees' children. She helped raise most of the McKee children and would eventually be passed to the oldest son, Henry when Henry's father passed. Lydia was in her 40s when she had Robert. Sources say he wasn't her first child, though. Her only other child on record, at least, was said to be Larry. The records aren't conclusive about Larry, as records of enslaved people are often few and far between in researching enslaved people. There is a story from Robert's later life that brings up Larry, though. He had a woman come ask for financial help, and when she thanked him for helping her, she said, thank you, brother, or uncle, or something. And he replied with something like, we are not family, as my brother Larry never had children. It's interesting, because I haven't actually found Larry mentioned anywhere except for that book by that author. And so, and so many other researchers have, they talk about Larry, but there's no records of Larry. And it seems like everything goes back to that lady's book. Well, that's not terribly great. It's not, but I I want to mention his name just in case he really was real, you know? Yeah. Robert was born the 5th of April, 1839, in Beaufort, South Carolina, in the enslaved quarters behind the McKee's house. There are some who say that Henry McKee was the father, but that has never been proven. Even descendants say 
they don't know for sure. The likelihood is small, though. Lydia was known to go back to the Ashdale plantation to visit and couldn't and could have easily been in a relationship with a man there. Robert spent his childhood doing work in the McKee home and doing things for Henry McKee outside of the home as well. His mother worried that he wouldn't really understand the plight of slaves because of his position in the home with his mother. So she made sure that she he saw the horrors of slavery. Robert found himself in trouble in the town on several occasions and would end up in the town jail. This was largely because he ignored the bell that rang to tell enslaved people to get home as they were not allowed out of their homes after a certain hour. Because of this and many other reasons, Lydia and Henry McKee worked out for Robert to go to be rented out in Charleston at the age of 12. He lived at Mrs. McGee's sister's and was rented out to do odd jobs. Robert was very resourceful. Because of his enslaved position, the money that he made almost all went to the McGee family. He was able to create his own income through the little bit that the McKees gave him. He worked at in a hotel at one point, as a lamplighter at another point, and eventually became a sailor at the Charleston waterfront. On the 24th of December, 1856, he married Hannah Jones, an enslaved woman who worked at the Planters Hotel as a maid. Hannah had two children before she married Robert. Their names were Clara and Charlotte. Robert and Hannah had three children, Elizabeth, Robert Jr., and Sarah, while being enslaved. As we've mentioned, Robert had jobs at the waterfront in Charleston. He eventually made his way into a job on ships, and the last ship he worked on was the planter. The planter had three white officers, a captain, a first mate, and an engineer. Besides this, there were seven enslaved black men. Their names were Robert Smalls, of course, and then there was John Small, who was not related to Robert, Alfred Gordine, who served as engineer, as an engineer, um, so did John Small, uh, and deckhands David Jones, Jack Gibbs, Gabriel Turner, and Abraham Jackson. The captain, first mate, and the one white engineer would often leave the ship in, in the care of the enslaved men at night so they could go to be with their families in town. During the Civil War, though, the South used all ships as part of the war effort, and these men leaving at night were actually breaking the law, which was the Confederacy General Order Number 5. This order disallowed the crew from leaving so that they could be ready to leave the harbor at any moment. Also, a few weeks before, a group of 15 enslaved people in Charleston sold a barge and rowed it to the Union fleet. Even after this, the Confederacy, and especially the captain of the planter, did not take any precautions to secure the vessels in the wharf. It is not clear how long before the escape that Smalls had planned it, but he and the others involved in the escape knew this was going to be their best chance at freedom. He stated later that the plan to steal the planter came up during a meeting at his home. It was before dawn on May 13, 1862, 
that they made their escape. There were several military guards, a police officer, and likely others who heard and saw the planter getting ready to leave. There was even a guard who moved closer to the planter before stopping because he thought he was just looking at a normal crew leaving on a delivery mission with the white Confederate officers on board. The planter was docked at Southern Wharf, which according to one map is at the most easterly wharf on the north side of Charleston. Smalls then had to backtrack to pick up his wife and children and another woman and her children at the North, Atl north Atlantic Wharf before heading towards the exit of the harbor. The number of people who escaped on the planter doesn't seem to stay consistent in all records. Some say there were 17 on board when they freed them themselves. Other records say 12. Some new newspapers we saw from 1862 only note besides the crew, the wife and two children of Robert Smalls and a sister and niece or nephew of John Small. Then there's a letter to the editor in several papers that is said to be a response from Robert Smalls to the rumor that he had asked to move to South America. In the letter, he notes that this is not true and also notes the number of people who were on board the planter when they freed themselves. So if this was for sure a letter from Robert Smalls, there were nine men, five women, and three children on board the ship that early morning in May 1862. In and around the harbor itself were numerous forts and artillery batteries. Most had pretty long-range weapons that could have easily taken out the planner if anyone had suspected anything. But amazingly, no one did until it was too late. Smalls was wearing the captain's hat as a sort of cover in the darkness. When he passed Fort Johnson, he blew the whistle of the ship, two long blows and, and a short one. He continued on without incident. There were several reasons why Smalls and the ship were not found out until it was too late. One was because he knew all the signal codes. And two, he basically disguised himself as the captain. And because of the, the light being so low at that time, it did help fool the Confederates. And third, previous forts and batteries along the way had let the ship through. So they just assumed, well, they got through those already. So I might as well just, everything must be fine. Small and the other passengers' final goal was to reach the Union blockade near the opening of the harbor. This blockade prevented Confederate ships from bringing goods to the Confederacy. There were ships that could outrun the blockade, like the planter had done, but the Union had intercepted some ships, either by capturing them or by destroying them. So even surviving getting past the Confederate forts in and around the harbor would mean, wouldn't mean that they were made it to safety. The crew had raised the Confederate flag and the South Carolina flag when they'd left port. But once they were out of range of the Confederate guns, they quickly lowered those flags and put up a white bedsheet. The ship they were approaching was the Onward. With fog coming in again, there was a chance that those on the Onward might not see the white flag. Some of the guns on the Onward were actually trained on the planter, but someone finally saw the white flag. It is said that Smalls told the captain of the Onward, good morning, sir. I brought you some of the United States guns, sir. Congress awarded him and the other men half the value of the planter as prize money. Lots of authors pointed out that Smalls didn't have the $700 to purchase the freedom of himself and his family before escaping, but now he had $1,500. That is equivalent to over $40,000 today. 
The South was embarrassed by the daring escape, but amazingly, the white officers from the ship didn't face much, if any, consequences. The Confederate traders put a bounty of $4,000 on Small's head that no one ever won. Rear Admiral Samuel Francis DuPont wrote that Robert is superior to any who have come into our lines, and intelligent as many of them have been. His knowledge about Charleston Harbor won the Union Coles Island within the week after Smalls and others escaped. He joined other African leaders in potential petitioning the U.S. government to allow African Americans to join the Union Army. With the influence of these leaders and others in July of 1862, Congress passed the Second Confiscation and Militias Act. Among other things, including this, formerly enslaved people who freed themselves and went to the Union Army for help for help were freed and the men were allowed to join the U.S. Army in any way the U.S. Army needed them. They were given the wages of, of $10 a month, three less than white privates. They were only considered as laborers at first. Enlistment was slow as well. Some states had their own regiments by late 1862. It wasn't until after the Emancipation Proclamation and the encouragement from leaders such as Frederick Douglass that more men enlisted. By the end of the war, there were almost 180,000 black men who served in the U.S. Army and about 19,000 men who served in the Navy. While Smalls started working with the Navy to begin with, he was later transferred to the Army in 1863. Smalls piloted several Union ships during the war. These included the USS Crusader, the Planter, the... Your guess is as good as mine. Keokuk, maybe? The Keokuk, an ironclad ship, the Isaac Smith, the Huron, the Paul Jones. He was never a commissioned officer, but in 1897 he was granted the pension of a Navy captain. He fought in 17 battles during the Civil War. Smalls was discharged from the military on the 11th of June, 1865. After the war, he went back to Beaufort. He bought the McKee home with some of the money from his award for delivering the planter to the Union. The home had been owned by the McKee family, but they had sold it before the war. He was a prominent politician for South Carolina during Reconstruction, both at the state and federal level. He was also involved in ensuring education for all children in South Carolina. Now, here's a list of some of the things he was involved in. He was a delegate at the South Carolina Constitutional Convention in 1868. He was a member of the South Carolina House of Representatives from 1868 to 1870 and the South Carolina Senate from 1870 to 1875. While in state legislature, he was the state school commissioner. 
He was also a U.S. House of Representatives member from 1882 to 1883, and again from 1884 to 1887. He was a founding member of the South Carolina Republican Party, and he helped create legislation to create schools in South Carolina that were mandatory for all children. He was also a member of the school board as well. I think it was called like the normal school or something like that. I can't remember. Ah, that makes sense. In the 1890s, he was offered a commission in the U.S. Army in the Spanish-American War, which he turned down, and he did the same with the U.S. minister to Liberia. He was a member of the state militia after the war, and I'm guessing it was more like the National Guard is now, but maybe a little bit less. And this was where he began to be called General Smalls. He, and last, he was the collector of customs in Beaufort, South Carolina from 1889 to 1913. In 1883, his wife Hannah died. He then married Annie Wig in 1890. She had one son, William Robert, in 1892. Sadly, Annie died in 1895. Robert lived until 1915 when he died of complications from malaria and diabetes. He was buried at the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Beaufort. There you can see a bust honoring him. On the monument, there was a quote from Smalls from an 1895 statement to the South Carolina legislature that states, my race needs no special defense for the past history of them in this country proves them to be equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. Now, as a quick side note, there is a statue of Harriet Tubman at the Tabernacle Church as well. Tubman was based in Beaufort during the Civil War, and that's where she was before she participated in the famous Combahee Ferry Raid, which rescued over 700 enslaved people. Tubman did a lot of community work there at the Tabernacle as well, taking care of the sick and teaching people important life skills. And... I'm going to end out just saying some things that um, Robert Smalls is commemorated. Um, his memory is commemorated. So Robert Smalls is commemorated in many ways, especially in the military. There was a Fort Robert Smalls near Pittsburgh that survived until the 1940s. During World War II, there was a Camp Robert Smalls that was a sub-facility of the Great Lakes Naval Training Center. And this was during the World War II, the military was still segregated, so that's why they had that. In 2004, the U.S. military named a ship, USAV, Major General Robert Smalls, which is a logistics support vessel. And besides the military commemoration, Robert Smalls is honored with a statue at the U.S. National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. There is also a the Robert Small School in Chero, South Carolina. I'm sure I'm butchering that. And there's also the Robert Smalls International Academy in Beaufort County, South Carolina. And lastly, his home in Beaufort was designated a National Historic Landmark and in 2022 was listed on the Reconstruction Era National Historic Network, which is part of the Reconstruction Era National Historical Park. That was the life of the Civil War hero, Robert Smalls. His life impacted people in his time and still does today. Yay. Fascinating life. Really fascinating life. 
It's interesting that you have so much about him. It's kind of surprising in a sense. I I wonder if like if all that he'd done was his daring escape. Like, would there would he like I know he kind of disappeared from national attention for what 120 years 30, 30 years or whatever but would there be like a big uptick uptick in his story if all he'd done is escape the way he did i don't know maybe maybe Not but sure. he also like he did some really good things like he brought education to kids in south carolina that like they they weren't getting that before i mean not just the in, formerly enslaved kids even the, the white kids weren't getting the educations yeah we hope that you can join us again next time be sure to follow us on our social media we have an instagram and uh twitter that we barely post on but i'm trying to do better well thanks again for listening and be sure to share like subscribe And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.